Good evening, everyone. Uh, we can't see, it's all, we're all seen, we can only see if you smile and if you open your eyes wide because the light's that way. My name's Brenda Manners and it's absolutely an honour to be here with our esteemed guest discussing with you culture after Windrush. Um, I think it's fair to say that the black community, particularly the Caribbean, the Caribbean community, when they came over, um, we, can't, we can't, I think, we cannot say there was a, a distinctive black British culture at that time, but since they've come, they've made their impact, they've, they've, with that, they've had their struggles, but we can say that there's been an explosion a, a, a defi definite influence on on the culture of Britain, on our culture and, and, and generations beyond. And we're looking at how it's been celebrated, how it's been influenced and the impact it's had on all of us. But let me not hesitate any longer and introduce you to our wonderful guest. To my right, we have Larry Achenpong, artist who has exhibited, performed and presented project, projects with, it, with, with the, within the UK and abroad and whose work examines his communal and personal heritage. Can we give him a round of applause, please? My, to my left, we have Sharon Watson, who's a direct dancer and choreographer, and since 2009, artistic director of Phoenix Dance Theatre. In 2010, Sharon was named one of the cultural leadership programmes Women to Watch, a list of 50 influential women working in the arts. Sharon Watson. Next to Sharon, we have Matthew Ryder. Matthew is Deputy Mayor for Social Integration. He's also a barrister, previously Chair of the UK's Black Cultural Archives, and also previously a Governor at the University of the Arts in London. Next to, Max, next, next to Matthew, I've got my teeth in, I've rushed here off the tube and I will settle in <laughs> two minutes, I promise. <laughs> we have Dr Margaret Byron, Chair of the Race, Culture and Equality Working Group of the Royal Geographical Society and author of The Unfinished Cycle, War Migration from the Caribbean to Britain. <laughs> so Margaret, I, I think it'd be fitting to start with you if we go back and look, when... They, they, they arrive, mm -hmm. they, 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 they settle up and down the UK. Where did they choose to settle and what impact did that have on the society mm -hmm. we have today? Um, could it, could Big I, question. Could, could I start by saying that it was a post-war, not the war? So did because I say Yeah, I think because there were migrants during mm -hmm. the war because, because there were Caribbean people who came to serve in the war effort and take part in that. But this, the, the, the migration, the Windrush generation was, was all post-war. Post forty-eight, of course. Forty-eight and post forty-eight. Um, people settled largely in large urban areas. The the greatest number, something like seventy-eight percent of all Caribbean people who, during that period, um, settled in London and the West Midlands, and the, the other <laughs> twenty-two percent would have been in in large metropolitan areas in the north, so Leeds, Manchester, and that sort of area. You, 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 you'll get outliers. So Ipswich, for example, had a, a fair Caribbean, a fairly fair-sized Caribbean population, as did the East Midlands. So I live in Leicester, which had a, a few thousand Caribbean people settled there. Nottingham, similarly. Um, what it, sometimes I, I struggle with the concept of choice because, in a way, people were very much directed to where industrial work was, where factories were. They were also heavily occupied within the transport sector. So people worked on, on London transport in large numbers. In fact, many came specifically recruited to work in London transport. Um, also, so it was industry, it was, it was um, 
large-scale manufacturing industry, particularly in the northern cities and the West Midlands, transport, and of course the National Health Service for many women. So public services, transport was at the time a completely public service, um, and, and the private industry really. So, and that tended always to be located, it was concentrated in, in um, large urban areas. When they, uh, although well um, invited, the welcome wasn't always particularly sweet or anything, no black, no Irish, no dog. Yeah. Did that have an impact? Was it, did they settle in communities or areas that, that seemed more welcoming? Did that have any impact on? In terms of actual settlement, so they settled, they settled at the city level. In terms of within urban areas, we're talking at lots of different scales here. But when it came to housing, they tended to be not so much directed, but governed by where housing was available and there was an enormous amount of racism in there well number one this was post-war britain which had an absolute housing crisis for everyone so everyone who largely lived within cities there was a tremendous housing crisis following the war so they were whenever there's housing crisis there's a the, the, the systems of entitlement are set up and there's a notion of who's most entitled and who's least entitled and these were new migrants who were people of color who were black who were asian who who were seen as being largely alien despite this oh, this this sort of state invitation or partial invitation. So, and above all, despite them being people who were British citizens, and as a result of their colonial and post-colonial status, were more entitled than many of the other European immigrants to Britain at the time. Well, we were talking about it earlier, and what I found fascinating, so I remember my mother talking and saying, we were from St. Lucian, she was saying a lot of her family, and all her friends, were settling in particular parts, particularly mm. in London, like in Paddington, Paddington, for example, yeah. for St. Lucian's, and you were saying other, other islands yeah. had their own patch. When I lived in West London, I used to live in Acton, and um, the Askew Road used to be where all the Grenadians were sent to stay. <laughs> and it was, it, was, it was really, it intrigued me. And every time I go on the 266 on the Askew Road, I used to think, yeah, I'm amongst Grenadians today, <laughs> or no, I'm amongst Grenadians right now. But I think it started with a person or a family who settled in a house a room, not a house, and then other, they'd tell others, you know, they got a room coming up, and it would go like that. But in a way, it was very dependent on which landlords would rent property to black people at the time, or Irish people similarly, you know. So it was, it was there was choice, but there wasn't really choice, because you were very, very limited. Parts of Notting Hill, which were horrific properties, really. There were slum properties, and yet they were rented at premium prices to migrants who didn't have a choice but were left with with very little choice but there was still that agency in the sense that if a room was coming up you told your friend who was probably still in Barbados or still in Jamaica we could fix up a room for you for when you come. So Matthew, um, culture became a way for the Caribbean diaspora mm -hmm. to kind of um, express their authentic identities. The Black Cultural Archive plays a significant role in preserving our culture, preserving our history. How important is it, do you think that is, in, but also how important do you think it is that we, considering we're sitting here in the National Theatre, keep culture alive? Um, obviously it's really important. So I think the uh, value we place on the cultural traditions, mm -hmm. the cultural heritage of, you know, we're now kind of third, fourth generation immigrants in this country. 
I think is vital. You can't really tell the story of Britain, let alone the story of the descendants of immigrants like us, unless you are telling the story about um, what it was like when they came, what, all the things that they went through. I do think, though, sometimes... Um, so that's a, I think that's a really important point, and that, you know, I wouldn't want to in any way uh, say anything that deflects from that, because that's a fantastically important point. We should support black cultural archive. We should support all the organisations that are trying to preserve that culture. I think there is, a, there is a, some other features to it that we don't discuss enough, though. So one of the features that... A couple of things that I'm not sure people are aware of, for example, is that when you go to Black Cultural Archive, and if I'd recommend anybody to go and you look through the archive, what you'll notice is that a huge percentage of it is political protest material. So it's about protest, particularly anti-racism protest. And I think that's a really important part of our history. It, we talk a lot about what the racism that our parents or our grandparents faced when they came here. But there is more to our story in this society than racism and anti-racism. There's more to our identity as black Britons, as Caribbean Britons, than racism and anti-racism. There's, be there's a culture, there's a strand of how we lived, how our lives adapted, you know, how the British culture influenced who we were and who we were, who were born here versus our parents who were born in the Caribbean. And that's a really important story too. And we sometimes, there's a kind of caffeine rush of political excitement about the political protest and the, and the stuff that went on and the empowerment that you feel from people pushing back against racism. Really important stories. But there's cultural stories too that I think are really, really important to tell. Our music, you know, our, our kind of way of living, our food, all sorts of other things. Just our, our, our way of adapting to the society around us. And I also think the final part of your question you were saying... I mean, maybe we'll touch on this more as we, as we talk, but if you're looking forward, it's much more important, in a sense, to understand the preservation of that experience and that history moving forward. And there are lots of reasons for that. For anybody moving forward, your history becomes more distant, and so therefore it's really important you preserve it and it's there for future generations so it doesn't become forgotten. And we have a particular uh, problem with, with kind of not preserving our culture sufficiently. You know, we kind of take it for granted a little bit. But I think there's a particular issue for, for Caribbean Britons. I speak as like the, the, you know, the, the child of a Caribbean person and as a Caribbean Briton. I think there's a particular issue for us with our culture at this moment because we are going through a demographic change of who we are as a population, what percentage we are of the black population of Britain. The Caribbean population of Britain is largely fixed. It's not growing particularly and other black populations are growing. I think it's probably fair to say that um, if you compare our childhood growing up, because um, you're younger than me, of course, but... I'd, I'd um, not exactly <laughs> argue with you on that one. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> you know, the black Britain felt like a Caribbean culture, mm. sometimes even a Jamaican culture, mm. you know, to many people. And I think that's really changed, and you have to embrace that. You have to be positive about it. Britain, black Britain is much more a West African accented culture, increasingly so. Obviously with the flavour of the Caribbean infused with that, of mm. course, it's never going to go away. But I think we have to embrace that, we have to be understanding of it, but it makes it all the more important that we've got to then not take for granted the heritage of Britain's story about black people and Britain's um, relationship with black Britain and who black Britons are now versus who they were my generation or my parents' generation. So, you know, from that point of view, I think it's much more important than it's ever been 
that we understand our heritage, the, the cultural stories, and we preserve them. But post-migration -mi brought with it, um, the, the, we had Trinidadians on, on the Windrush, we know it brought Calypso, it influenced Scar, we had um, poets, we had dancers. That, that culture is there. W why do you think it's been so difficult, A, to preserve it, and that we don't know? Is it because we're not the curators of our culture, because there's been nowhere for it to be preserved before BCA? What's been the problem? I think there's an element of that. Or we have too much time trying to fit in. Yeah, so I think there's an element of that. I think, I'm not sure about too much time, time trying to fit in. I think probably one element is that we didn't have the access to the institutions that preserve culture and our culture maybe wasn't valued by those institutions in the same way as other aspects of British culture in the past. And so they, you know, they weren't celebrating this kind of story at the National 30 years ago in the way they do now, and it's great progress for it. Mm. Same with our museums and other institutions. I think um, one part of it is probably that we, uh, and I, I say this is some Jamaican heritage, but I think Caribbeans generally, you know, we have a swagger and confidence about our how powerful our culture is. We believe we punch way over our weight. We think we have this disproportionate impact on the world. It's true, of course. <laughs> but but the, the reality is, I think, the, the downside of that is that sometimes we see superficial manifestations of our culture right across in front of us, across all aspects of British experience. Mm. And that can lead us, I think, sometimes to take for granted the finer points of our culture, the complexities of our culture, the kind of the poetry and the nuance of our culture because we're seeing the way people speak, the way popular music goes, the way people kind of might um, uh, develop uh, Caribbean culture into things that they're doing. And I think sometimes we might have taken for granted that if we don't preserve it in its fullness, we're going to lose bits of it. And I think we're, we're slowly appreciating that more and more. Now, Sharon, you're a child of the Windrush generation. You've just produced this amazing piece of work, dance, on called Windrush, what was your ambition with it? Was it to preserve the history? It was, uh, it was an interesting experience because I, um, it was, when I took on the role of artistic director, I felt that it was important to celebrate Windrush. Um, my mother, who came here from the Caribbean, would always talk about stories of Windrush when she, was, when she arrived. She, wasn't, she didn't come on the boat, but she did actually come over in the 50s. And there was something quite emotional about it, but I, she would never kind of go beyond a certain point. Um, and actually, I did say, taking on this role, if I was ever given the opportunity, this would be a celebration. And just picking up on what you were saying about the, the kind of the choice of material that I had to decipher in order to put into the show um, was quite a challenge. And I chose not to make it a depressing piece of work, which it could have been, I, but I wanted to get a key message through that. And um, so it was contrasted against the celebration because I think we sometimes forget that the celebration of what the contribution the Caribbean people have, have given us is to be celebrated, it is to be preserved, and it's a joyous um, part of our heritage now that some we do tend to overlook. And that is with music, that's with fashion, that's with language, that's with poetry. It's every aspect. So. I had quite a, a challenge trying to select, but it, I definitely wanted it to be a celebration. The music's just too great not to celebrate. <laughs> and this is a question to you and to Larry. Um, when you are creating work, when you are some would say, almost privileged position, because it is still a challenge for black, black artists of all forms to, to kind of have their work. But when you're in a position when you can, do you consciously think of, of your audience? Do you want your own to be embraced in it, or do you try to get the message across to consciously to a wider audience. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? How important is it for you that your people get an opportunity to see? Essential. 
absolutely essential. I couldn't believe when I was looking at the audiences. I've worked in theatre a long time, and I think the tour started in February this year, and every time I've been in the audience, I have been amazed at how... Um, in fact, the feedback has been phenomenal, and that's the thing that I think is driving my, my hunger myself, is that there's a thirst for this work, there's a need for this work. And one of the quotes, which I think I'm going to frame at some point, is just that um, it's, it was an, a necessity. There was a, a hunger that you have just quenched. And I, I felt that, you know, a 93-year-old telling me that at this stage in mm. my career is definitely something to be admired. And there is definitely a need for it. There you actually enough. feel it. Like, if you, when you come, if you come and see the audience of Nine Night, they are almost drinking and yeah. absorbing the experiences. Mm. It's been phenomenal. And I do tend to sit in the audience, try to disguise myself so I can absolutely absorb the audience experience. And you can hear the mumblings, the conversations, and the remembrance, mm -hmm. the visceral memories of that taking shape in it's a piece of theatre in itself. So Larry, do you um, share with, with, with Sharon the, the idea that there is this thirst, there's this, this hunger, and does that, how much does that impact the work that you do? I know culture, identity is, is central to the work that mm. you do. Yeah, no, of course. Um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm very early in my, in my career in comparison, um, but I guess, you know, like one of the most recent pieces I uh, created, the Pan-African flag for the Relic Travellers Alliance, which uh, stood atop of the, uh, the uh, Somerset House in the summer of last year for six months. Um, you know, the process of creating that work um, was, was, was very important in having a conversation with, um, with, uh, with people of colour, with Africans, Afro-Caribbeans, uh, in a way that spoke about pride, in a way that uh, celebrated heritage uh, through colour, through form. Uh, this idea of ascension. So at the, uh, at the heart of the flag, in terms of there are, uh, there are basically 54 stars that represent um, uh, the range of nations within the, uh, the African continent, but you have uh, this uh, kind of angel-like figure which is moving in ascension. But you also have, um, you know, Pan-African colours, which of course connect with, uh, you know, West, in uh, West, um, West Indian uh, flags as well. So, um, you know, when I'm when I'm creating my work, there's always that that thought in mind. I think also in terms of you know where I personally come from. You know, I grew up in uh, in in Bethnal Green in the, uh, the the early 80s through to the uh, the the 90s, and um, you know the experience of, of of being working class, of being black, um, and uh, taking on the 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 turmoils of of of, of racism, uh, certain heritages of uh, trauma. Um, and, and experiencing racism, not simply just on the, uh, the, the, the playgrounds and the streets, but you know, through products, things like, I don't know, Robertson's um, uh, gollywogs on the, uh, the jam jars. You know, these things, uh, I think, kind of really etched into you know, my mind and, and that of uh, people that I grew up with. So I think you know, the, the, the importance of uh, representation is a really big deal. You know, it has been um, and, and continues to be within my work. I think um, it's it's important that we do celebrate. Um, I think, in it, especially in the way that uh, Matthew mentioned, you know, not simply just talking of you know protests, but actually looking mm -hmm. uh, in, in in pride of our, our own heritage and history. You know, my mother, she uh, in, in growing up in Bethnal Green, she would always tell us stories about. Um, uh, Yah Santua and uh, the likes of Kwame Nkrumah, you know, so that, that really, I think, instilled a, a confidence for me to, uh, I think, develop the voice that I have today. We've both been involved in a project um, um, when we 
had, when they first opened the um, Diaspora Pavilion yes. at the Venice Biennale, the idea being that black artists don't have the space to show mm. it, particularly on an international mm -hmm. level. Do you, think that's, do you think it's still a challenge for black culture to be celebrated, to be embraced either at home or internationally? No, certainly. I think it's, you know, I mean, it, it's interesting that you ask that, that, that question uh, at this moment now, because obviously, um, you know, I'm sure many of you would have gone to have seen the, uh, the, the Black Panther movie, which was recently released. You know, an incredible uh, phenomenon, which has you know, taken the world over. Uh, a very kind of special story which looks at uh, colonization from a totally different point of view or angle. But even before that film came out, there was nothing of that type which had really, you know, hit culturally or in a, in a, in a mass kind of global kind of sense. Um, so I think, you know, when, when you even move into the, uh, the, the realm of, of, uh, of the arts, contemporary art, um, I think that you know, artists like myself are still uh, dealing with uh, a lot of the problems that, um, you know, our predecessors uh, had to deal with, the likes of Lebena Himid, uh, Sonia Boyce, uh, Keith Piper and more. Um, the, the, the burden of representation, uh, the, the, the types of opportunities that we're given and, uh, you know, when will those opportunities, you know, happen for us? Some people are, uh, are decided upon, and it's really a minute amount of, of, of people. So it's um, it's a problem that we certainly still deal with today, and and a lot of you know my peers conversate about. I want to read a quote to you, um, which was was contentious when it was. It's, it's by um, British historian David Sharkey, which he said on Newsnight on the twelfth of August. I don't know whether you remember. I can see Matthew. <laughs> Yeah. It was a substantial section of the, they were talking about Chavs, white urban subculture. A, a, subse a substantial section of the Chavs have become black. The whites have become black. A particular sort of violent, destructive, nihilistic gangster culture has become the fashion and the black, the black and white boy and girl operate in this language together. The language, which is wholly false, which is this Jamaican patois that's been intruded in England, and this is why so many of us have this sense of literally a foreign country. Okay, there you respond, Matt. What does it say? <laughs> I don't even know where to start with something like that. I mean, I mean, it's so difficult to even get a grip on what he, what he even, if he has any understanding of like young working-class white people, let mm. alone young working-class black people. Mm. I mean, you just have to live in London and be in London and see that that's just a, a, you know, a horribly inaccurate representation of the relationship between young white people and young black people. So the idea that somehow young white people have taken on some, some culture that's been imposed on them and turned them into kind of violent, it's, it's just beyond any... I mean, there's no evidence to it. There's no... It's nothing other than kind of a weird perception that's built on some kind of prejudice about how a problem occurred. I think, I mean, not, so I'm, I don't even want to dignify that with trying to unpack it or trying to get into the politics mm -hmm. of it. It's just, it's just, you know, horrible misrepresentation of kind of the phenomenon of violence, right? And it's just attributing it to black people in a way that just doesn't make sense. What I would say, though, is that sometimes there's a misunderstanding about how Caribbean culture and how young Caribbean people um, were, um, were led to interact with British culture and how, and, you know, Caribbean and African, how their parents perceived their interaction with British people. Mm -hmm. Because I think the way that's portrayed in that statement is as if there's this kind of horrible, you know, pool of, 
black people that have kind of somehow dragged, dragged these virtuous white people into it and, and they've been contaminated by the kind of the terrible culture of black people. And the irony is, is that if you went into West Indian homes and African homes in the 70s and 80s, the concern amongst the parents of the Caribbeans and the Africans was that their kids were hanging out with people who didn't have, didn't go to church necessarily, didn't have this moral framework that they thought they would have when they came to this country, didn't have the same kind of ambition. Um, you know, this idea that, that Caribbean people, for example, weren't interested in education is just anathema in a sense that, you know, the problem was that they would, you know, people a little bit older than me were denied access to schools, education, denied access to kind of being able to settle into the institutions. I mean, it was raw, hardcore racism that, that lots of people faced. And so there is a, when I heard that statement, aside from being repulsed by the kind of mm. undertone of it, the irony that's in there for me listening to that is that there was this, it was Caribbean and African parents who were sometimes, and a Asian parents who were sometimes aghast at the kind of what they perceived, and I'm not passing a judgment on it, what they perceived as the kind of moral, you know, um, lack of moral kind of codes and, and kind of Christian values <laughs> that they were facing when they, or, or religious values that they were facing when they arrived in this country. So it's just so ironic from someone of Caribbean heritage to hear that because it was almost the opposite that was being said in Caribbean churches and, and probably in mosques and other places across London saying, be careful of these English people, they're a little bit crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Let's look at some of the legacy of what... Because modern Britain began, let's say, around 1948, when, when uh, the 500 Caribbean people came over um, to the UK. And then we, did, we mentioned already that we had the likes of Kitchener and, um, Carib and, 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 and Calypso. We had Edric Connor, Tr Trinidadian actor and singer, who starred in a West End musical called Calypso. And this 1948 show was the first London play based on a West Indian subject with a Caribbean cast. I didn't even know that. You know, I had to look that up, which is embarrassing. He also recorded songs from Trinidad and songs from Jamaica in 1954 and 55. In 1951, the Festival of Britain brought the Trinidad All Steel Percussion Orchestra to the attention of the British public. They created a trend for wealthy and stylish English people in Oxford and Cambridge to hire steel bands and other Calypso musicians for debutante parties. Mm. And we, we cannot forget, and it's still significant, is the carnival, how that has evolved. Do you think the carnival is probably... I guess, the, f the flagship, the, 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 the huge legacy of, the, of that, the, the culture of that time and now, Margaret? I, th I think it's more of an arts question, so I think I'd <laughs> hand that <laughs> over to, to some of the artists. I mean, I, I, I have opinions on the carnival, but I'd prefer probably the dancers and the, and the performers. <laughs> Come on then, dancer, too. your turn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think what is phenomenal yeah. is that we've just celebrated 50 years of the yeah. West Indian Carnival, which is unbelievable. Mm. Um, the fact that actually, you know, Britain has embraced it. In fact, it's embraced across Europe in terms yeah. of the biggest carnival, the biggest celebration, one of the biggest festivals in the UK, in Europe. Um, and what is happening? I mean, I think uh, London leads, leads we, we do take claim that we have the first, and we, we argue this with London. <laughs> but uh, I think Arthur France always Let's talks... Let's not get territorial. Not now. at all, all not together. at all. But, um, <laughs> but what, a, what an opportunity to celebrate culture and diversity within that, because I think mm -hmm. some of those, the carnival itself is, is, a, is, a, is an opportunity to share history mm -hmm. um, and to build history. So we embrace it with open arms and creativity. And, you know, we, um, we take this opportunity within, within my world as, as creatives, as dancers, to actually really talk mark our, our history in that way and um, 
we can't afford to lose that. So it's a significant time. Um, I think governments are embracing it, although they tend to find it quite a threatening environment because it has the freedom. And I think that freedom is something that is embedded right across the Caribbean islands. The freedom to tell stories, the freedom to engage, the freedom to express oneself. Um, and that's also, you know, through the music, through the costumes, through the identity of people, through the many mixed races of people that all sits within that. Um, and the story of Carnival needs to be on the national curriculum because we can learn so much and understand why it was there and what mm. its purpose is now serving in a 21st century. We could go on forever, and, but as they say, all good things have to come to an end because there's a wonderful show that has to take place here this evening. I want to thank you all for coming. It's been amazing and you've been amazing to, to, to engage with. A huge thank you to our audience, our, our panel rather. <laughs> Do stay in touch with the National Theatre and all its great work, but more importantly, what these guys are doing. Keep for this. That's why we have iPads and Twitter and Google, etc., to find out what everyone's doing. Thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.